Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We put so much pressure on young kids to decide and to know, but I think the thing to really do is follow your curiosity, exactly what you said, because when you are passionate about something, you will fulfill your potential. I do think we really have to encourage our young girls to understand that failure is not the end of you, that it's an opportunity of growth and that it's going to happen, so embrace it. What we don't really talk about is how much of parenting is being a child again. You are, in a way, parenting yourself at the same time as you're parenting your child. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Elevate podcast. I'm thrilled to have you join me as I welcome today's guest, who is the fantastic Amil Nayazi, a Canadian writer, broadcaster and columnist, a culture critic currently residing in Toronto. Amil was a longtime section editor at Vancouver's now defunct alternative weekly publication, Terminal City. From there, she went on to co-found the alternative bi-weekly only and is also the former co-host of City TV's Ethnosonic and a regular contributor to CBC Radio 3. With over 15 years of impressive experience in multimedia content production, she is no stranger, especially to many millennial audiences. Amil is a writer and editor whose work has appeared in prestigious outlets such as The New York Times, The Guardian, The Cut and Vice. She has also worked in the commissioning departments at the BBC and The Guardian and as a longtime associate producer at the CBC. Her work is honest, open, refreshing. Her work might be familiar to many of our listeners from her infamous series on parenting for a column known as The Hard Part for the magazine The Cut, where she pragmatically covers all the issues around work, momfluencers, staying on top of pop culture as a parent, motherhood, and how all of these might intersect or when life just gets on top of us as parents and carers. In her own words, she relays it's much easier to talk about the hard parts because those bursts of frustration, sleeplessness and struggle, even in their specificity, can feel universal. Like a cheat code to relate to other moms and dads who are otherwise too tired to explain the many, many ways their hearts might have also been made to fail full. But we seem to have no problem describing our baby's latest sleep digression or our teen meltdowns. In a way, it's a way of starving off the loneliness and navigating your way through the rougher waters of parenthood. Well, she is a creative, a flexible, innovative producer. Emil feels excited about changing how we tell stories to adapt to the evolving needs and desires of our consumers. With our kids and teens being at the very forefront of all of this, I am therefore extremely thrilled and very much looking forward to talking to Emil 
on the podcast for all of these relevant and poignant topics, along with so much more. A very, very warm welcome to you, Emile. Thank you so much for being here and joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure and a real delight. I'm excited to talk to you about so many different things, but I wonder if it's good to maybe start from the beginning a little bit, maybe describe what a young Emil was like. Oh my goodness. Um, I have not thought about that in a very, very long time. Um, my teachers always said um, I had a lot of potential, that I was very smart, um, but I needed to um, to to focus and to put all of my potential into what I was doing. I won the student of the year award when I was in grade six, uh, academic of the year, student of the month multiple times. Uh, and my parents would have said the same. Fantastic. So you were a hard worker or did it just come to you naturally in terms of why your teachers felt that you didn't fulfill always your potential? Yes. I think the problem is that it came very naturally to me. Um, and because of that, I, I, leaned into the slack. So I was like, Oh, I got this. I understand this. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm reading at a higher level. So I'm just not going to try as hard as um, I need to, because I don't, you know, I can do the test without studying. But then the older I got, the harder that became and the less I could do that. And so I think, yes, lots of potential, um, maybe not fulfilling all of it is what my all of my teachers have said um and in your background or culturally did that upset your parents a little bit did they wish that you would work harder and did it catch up to you eventually when you're a teenager or you hit sort of higher education yeah my parents always wanted me to be a doctor um that's a very very brown thing um to do uh i'm pakistani um first generation uh in canada and yeah, so because they could see that I was academically um, gifted, uh, they had put all their hopes and dreams into me becoming a doctor. And they were very hands off, actually, because they figured like she's got it, um, which was a mistake. <laughs> and then when I was in grade 12 in high school, I decided I wanted to be a writer. And my parents were like, what <laughs> but but you know what I have to say despite the fact that you know they were brought up um in, in a culture that that did support and sort of idealize discipline and you know academic achievement um they were very very supportive and and chill about what I wanted to do they just wanted me to they just wanted me to 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 do it and do it in the best possible way um, so, so actually they were really, they were really supportive, even though, yeah, I crushed their dreams. <laughs> I know. I mean, I've said I was given a doctor set as one of my first toys ever on my first memory. So I know exactly what that felt like. And I went through all the sciences and studied lots at university. It took me a lot longer to figure out I didn't want to be a doctor. I work with a lot of young girls who struggle between knowing what they want to do in life and the pressures of school, trying to dictate choosing the course levels, particularly here in London, where you have to pick A levels and choices for courses with some sort of career in mind. And I, and my, my opinion has always been, be curious, it doesn't matter. But I love the fact that you somehow knew there was some calling for you. And I would love for you to be able to talk me through what might that have been for you? Since I was a very, very, very young child, I have loved to write and tell stories. And um, 
very curious about uh, the news and what's happening in the world. I, I'm, I remember my grandfather on my mother's side, when he would visit us in Canada, he would have CNN on all day. And it was quite annoying, actually, because we wanted to watch cartoons. And he was like, no, I'm, I'm the patriarch and I'm <laughs> CNN on all day. But then, you know, I would sit and watch and we would talk about what was happening in the world. And, you know, I have very engaged um, uncles that always uh, encouraged me to read all kinds of different books, science fiction and, and history. And, and again, would um, knew my um, interests and, and my abilities and would encourage them and, and you know, wanted me to to be more curious about the world. And so it was it like, sure, I decided in grade 12, but I always knew because it was always the thing that I was attracted to and, and wanted to do. And I would write letters. To, I remember I would, um, you know, write letters to my future self about who I wanted to be and where I wanted to be. And, and, and writing was always a part of that future. And so I think that, you know, we put so much pressure on, on young kids to, to decide and to know, but I think the thing to really do is follow your curiosity, exactly what you said, because when you are passionate about something, um, you will fulfill your potential because otherwise you're disengaged. And if you're, if you're not engaged, then, then it just doesn't work because this is a hard, hard thing to do. It's a hard hustle. I'm, you know, I'm having to, to do multiple things and I have to be the one driving this train and and so if I didn't love it if I wasn't you know inclined from from the soul out I don't think that I could do it but I, I do I do really think that you also don't need to know when you're that age like take the classes um and pursue courses that that you just have always been curious about and that sound cool and interesting because you can make a pivot at any age I would love to ask you if working in journalism and in media as you do might have specific challenges for you that are unique to females, in your opinion. Obviously, this is just our your experience and possibly of your colleagues. And if there were someone listening to this that has dreams of becoming a writer or wants to one day work in journalism, what would you say might be something to be careful? What piece of advice might you give them? Yeah, I mean, it, it was hard. Um, it is hard to be a woman and a woman of color um, working in an industry that is still predominantly male and predominantly white. Um, I have, you know, I have felt it. I have seen it. I have been passed over for, for jobs that I was more than capable of doing. And, um, you know, seen a uh, mediocre white man take take it instead and that's difficult and that led me to to leave it you know the sort of um you know I left my, a job at the BBC not because that specifically was happening there but I just felt I had um exhaustion with the industry because it's been so many years of that type of thing but I would say that that doesn't mean that you can't make your own up opportunities and and carve your own path and I think that's what's great about this era of journalism, media, writing. You know, we have tools like Twitter to, uh, and Substack and Instagram and TikTok. You have a lot of ways to reach an audience that loves what you do, that loves who you are, that will support you based on, you know, everything about you as opposed to seeing you as 
less than because of your because you're a woman or because you're a woman of color. And so I think that um, the best thing to do is to to figure out what what type of storytelling you want to do. Um, you know, whether it's podcasting or feature writing or, you know, and then look at the tools that, that, that are out there that are often free or cheap that will allow you to do that uh, for yourself. And I think that that's a great way to think about this industry because it's very segmented and it's kind of dying around us as we speak. You know, there's layoffs, big layoffs every day, um, you know, entire news organizations disappearing um, within a week. BuzzFeed News is gone. Gawker is gone. All of these things that, that, that supported young writers and supported young writers of color no longer exist. And so I see it as difficult, but there is a lot of opportunity if you, again, are willing to um, figure out your own path within this industry. So find a niche or carve out a place for yourself that you feel passionate about and keep going with it. That's really helpful. Thank you. I'm intrigued by your views on re-examining and rejecting hustle culture. I would like to talk about the phrase girl boss. And I'm going to put that in quotes because I, I think it's sort of an interesting word, especially in the way for feminism and what girl bossing might mean. And you say, for you, the ambition to do it all at once has disappeared, but I still want to do interesting and good work. I'm just trying to find a new way of doing that. And that means saying no a lot. Is this a result, I would love to ask you, Emil, of the phrase that even as a teacher, I hear it from the teachers I work with, and I definitely hear it from the students I teach, burnout. I would love to know a little bit about why we're in a burnout place. If the world has moved on and we are doing things in a, I thought, in a much more thoughtful way, but possibly not because we've got tools and we've got technology and we're supposed to be able to make things easier for ourselves, yet our children are suffering from burnout. Our teenagers are suffering from the greatest mental health crisis I've ever seen across the globe. So I'd love to have your take on this. Would you like to expand on it for me? Yes. I mean, the problem is that we're always on. We're always connected. We're always reachable. And we're always working. Um, I send emails from the bathroom, from the airport, um, in the middle of a dinner conversation. I'm constantly getting notifications that that are related to work. And I feel... Um, and I think a lot of people feel that if you if you're not always available, if you're not always reachable, if you're not answering those emails at any hour, then you're replaceable and someone else will do it. Um, and certainly in creative industries where there there are so many people hungry to to do this job. So that, of course, leads to burnout because there's no separation between work and life. You do you don't go home at the end of the day and that's it and the boss can't reach you and no one you know no one's allowed to bother you um although there you know countries are making rules that you know in to put it you know hard lines in place to make that possible but the fact is if you work in news that's a 24/7 industry you have you know news breaks you have to be on top of it and you have to get, you know get to the studio and get going and so i think that we're we're we've just spent decades making ourselves constantly available being plugged in and being reachable and have those notifications you know they're draining and then you know add in these you know financial crises the world collapses and we lose our jobs and and there, you know there's no millennial or gen z that that probably has not been touched by a layoff now, you know, whether you've, whether you've been laid off yourself or whether your company has gone through layoffs, 
So that reinforces this idea that you can lose your job at any time. You are not valuable. You are not important. You know, you can be cut. And so, of course, you're not going to unplug and and unwind and make yourself unavailable. And so that's not sustainable. It's driving people to to burn out, to, um, to quit their jobs altogether because they can't take it. And so I think we are looking towards something different, something better. You know, remote work is really offering people a lot of um, control over their schedule, which I think is really helping. Uh, but but we, there, we have so much further to go in order to um, re-energize this workforce that, that really does feel like we're done. I wonder if your personality types play into this or cultural sort of conditioning does as well because the idea of a perfectionist young teen girl particularly in the work that I do I wonder if they're more prone to the burnout quicker because they are then trying to be the perfect student perfect daughter at home perfect netball captain that's in their sports teams and and then the best friend situation and like you say that you're not ever switching off from friendships either so that becomes a thing like the news cycle does do you have any thoughts on how we might try to maybe at a younger age teach girls to not try to be perfect at everything or get all the right that perfectionist type of personality which a lot of parents seem to initially love when they're very little and then I think it starts to really creep into the mental state of a young person's development yeah I think we need to encourage failure um I think I think men are more encouraged to try and fail and try again. And they're given support um, to do that. And whereas young girls really are not afforded second chances, third chances. And so we need to encourage them to fail, to see that, that it's not the end of the world. If you do fail, it's just another opportunity to, 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 you know, to pivot, to look at what, what's working and what's not working. And failure is a necessary part uh of life and it's going to happen and it's a, going to be a lot more crushing if you are terrified of it whereas if you understand that it's very natural and normal to fail to you know to not get get straight A's to not be the perfect friend to not be the perfect daughter to mess up sometimes to go out and you know do something inappropriate and uh, and learn from it I mean, the key is to learn from it and to and to to make it a part of your growth. But I do think, you know, we really have to encourage our our young girls to to understand that failure is not the the end of you, that it's an opportunity of growth and and that, you know, it's going to happen. So embrace it. Though I do think that sometimes it's easier said than done. I'm sitting in playgrounds or watching people in parks and things. And most parents like to share all their children's wonderful successes, right? It's very few opportunities that you get to sit down and some parent offers how awful things are for their, for their child, or if it does happen, maybe in a safe space and, you know, very close friends. But I think there is a societal, cultural, competitive streak of parents wanting to show how great their child might be over somebody else's child. And maybe that's a, a mass generalization, but it seems to be something that a lot of parents pick up on when they're around other parents. I don't know. So I like what you're saying a lot. And I'm I'm definitely in that camp. And I'm very happy for my daughter to have a terrible time at a netball match, you know, and come back and say, I bombed it. I didn't score any goals and then celebrate it. But I don't know how many other parents do. And I think a lot of parents also don't allow their children to fail. You know, they're, they're helicopter parents. 
they are so involved in their kids' um, social life, in their activities after school, in their schoolwork. You know, I've seen parents doing their kids' schoolwork. And it's all in, in an effort to not allow them to fail. And that is, that is on us. I think parents, and it's something I'm really conscious of with my own kids. They're very young, but, you know, we, we try and let them see that that mistakes happen and it's okay and you, you move forward and it's no big deal because I really think that we are setting up these generations to to be so afraid of failure and to be so anxious and stressed and depressed because they have this like huge expectation from birth to satisfy their parents. And, and we really have to stop doing that. And parents have to let the kids do what they're going to do because th- that's our job. Our job is to make it so that they are independent and can go out there and do it on their own. I'm with you on that. Hear her to that. So let's get more failing kids. Come on, parents, get, get on our <laughs> team, get on our side. But I wonder, speaking of what you were saying in terms of burnout and leading on to that whole perfectionist tendencies of children do you think that there is a shift millennials and gen z folks in terms of self-preservation and understanding what this new term that seems to be a buzzword at the moment which is boundaries then my generation which is you know i'm in my mid-40s now did for example i don't think i heard that word growing up i didn't know what a boundary was at all in fact that's probably why (laughs) most of us are burnt up because we are trying to especially culturally looking after our elders and looking after our children and and having a career and and every you know all of those compartments that make up you as a person self-preservation didn't seem like a thing at that time i wonder what your views on that and if you think that maybe there is a shift with young folks understanding the word no is something that they can do and and in some ways you want to applaud that but I wonder what you think about it really I hear about it you know I hear uh you know in the newsroom that they can't staff uh they they can't find anyone to work because Gen Z's they don't like the shift so they don't come in and, you know they don't like the casual work so they won't commit to it and I also hear you know Gen Z's on sex and they're like I I don't want to do that it's bad for my mental health yeah okay that's a perfect example let's let's talk about I mean how do we address this I I mean it's interesting I think it goes back to what I was saying about parents not letting their kids fail protecting them from how the real world works and so yes they have boundaries that's so important I I have shifted my own boundaries you know I say no a lot more and it's liberating and it feels amazing. But I also take jobs uh, because I have bills to pay. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not above doing, you know, all different kinds of things that are not writing to, to, to be financially secure. And I think for Gen Z, it's, it's all about self-preservation boundaries saying no and self-care and I think that there's a misunderstanding of what it takes to become the person that you want to become uh, professionally and it doesn't just happen right away and you know I hate the term paying your dues because I always felt it was a way of exploiting young people you know not paying them or paying them crap wages so that they would come early and stay late um, with this promise of something bigger down the line that often didn't materialize. So I, it's not, I'm not saying it's about paying your dues, but there, there is something that comes from 
being at one job for a long time. You learn a lot of different skills. You meet a lot of different people. You learn from your from senior people in the job, and and it's really important to be open to what that can give you, as opposed to what you are giving the job. And that's something that's maybe missing. And I'm really curious to see what happens with that because it is really different how they approach work. And some things about it are great. But some things about it are going to lead to a bit of a crisis, I think, as far as work goes. I have the same struggle with gentle parenting, that phrase. <laughs> and I know you've written about it extensively as well. So I I don't know, maybe we should, should we just go straight there? Should we go to gentle parenting? Sure. I, think yes. it does. Yeah. I think it builds on what you said about letting our children fail. One of my favorite phrases from your one of your articles not too long ago was broom elsewhere. And you write that for the, the, the cut, which many of my listeners may or may not already know. But if you haven't started reading those articles, you absolutely have to do. I would love for you to explain what I'm referring to. A Broom Elsewhere came from a, sh a show. Uh, I don't know if, if people watch it in the UK, but it was called Who's the Boss? And it was about, um, you know, a professional woman, hardworking woman, um, single parent who needs help. And she hires this uh, man played by Tony Danza. And at one point, you know, they're having some trouble with their youngest child. And so they take a, a course in, um, it's basically a pre, you know, pre gentle parenting sort of uh, thing where you're not supposed to say no or don't or can't. Um, and you're meant to like, you know, find ways of, of supporting the child and making it a positive environment. And so they take this course and they're feeling really great about it. And then they get home and the kid has like the uh, broom and he's swinging it around and it's super dangerous. And, Tony Danza's character is trying to find a way to say, say, you know, stop doing this, but positively. And he ends up with broom elsewhere. And it's just like always stuck with me as being so funny, so absurd. And then when I became a parent and, and, and read a lot about gentle parenting and, and a lot of it really re did resonate with me, but I've found myself in so many situations where I'm, I'm like, oh my God, the broom elsewhere. This is broom elsewhere. Because, yeah, I mean, kids, they do want boundaries. They do want to know what they can and can't do. Uh, it, sometimes it's a, literally a life-saving thing where you're like, you cannot go on the road. It's not safe. It's so necessary. And I think that there's um, a middle ground that people are moving towards where we don't want to parent the way our parents parented us necessarily. Sometimes it was, you know, too strict, too patriarchal, um, you know, too focused on the who we should become according to their expectations, according to their expectations, as opposed to allowing these human beings to to naturally come to those conclusions and to to make mistakes and find their way and understand what it is to be alive and be a person in this world. Um, and so I, I think that there there is this middle space that that I think is becoming more and more um, common and talked about. But you know, gentle parenting leans very broom elsewhere, and I think it also ends up being again like you're constantly monitoring your kids and they're you're always with them and you're not allowing them to to literally fall I'm taking a step back from that and my kids are probably like what happened to mom <laughs> you say you're taking a step back from gentle parenting yes yeah 
I've never yelled. We never yell in this household. Wow. What's your secret? Honestly, it's, yeah, I, I just, I, I really, really found it so, so disturbing when I was a child that I'm so conscious of of not raising my voice around the kids, but I I just, yeah, I, I, I have definitely harder boundaries with them. Um, I have less, they get less leeway in, in the conversation. There's less options. Um, sometimes there's no options, the antithetical to gentle parenting. It's all about, you know, offering up options and never saying no, just saying like, Oh, but what about this? Or what about that? But sometimes the answer is no. And we've got to move on and we have to go and that's it. And there's, you know, in life, there are often, there's no A or B. There's just what you have to get done. And I think that that's part and parcel of what we're talking about, where this generation has been parented by people who have rejected their own parents' style. And, and, and that's great. I think that's important for growth, but I think they've gone too far. That hovering is not helpful to anyone. And they've also never heard the word no sometimes or understood rejection or letdown or disappointment. And these are all huge feelings that I think, interestingly, I think you see that the toddlers and, te- and teens get very inter- interesting time of development for their brains and what's happening. And that is generally the time where they want to take risks, right? Toddlers want to check out their independence. Surprise, surprise, so do teens. And so funny enough, you think you're done when they're that little and then you you start parenting teenagers. And so often the question I get is like, I want to, and, and they're pushing you away, right? Tweens want nothing to do with their parents. It's like the worst time in terms of intervening. So my advice is always, and I'd love to have your take on this, is use that pre-adolescent stage, use that pre-teen time to really let them explore, really fill them with the amount of kind of foundational skills that you want your child to have, and then trust them and let them, let them go a little bit, let them take those risks and see what happens. Because they won't always go well. And when they don't, then at least they'll know that you, you, mom and dad have t- given me this or whoever might be raising them, whatever, you know, your parents and carers have provided you with the ability to pick yourself up when you have had a fall. And I don't know if gentle parenting allows that. I don't know if that opportunity is there really. I mean, I think it can be. I think if you, it, it's something you have to modify for yourself. But I, I love that you said trust. And, and you know, I think, think about my five-year-old and you know the neighborhood we live in and often you know now that he knows about the road and cars and crossing the road we often let him lead um and say you know lead the way take us to the park and he loves that he loves being responsible and being tasked with something and feeling like the leader and it, it also empowers him to then know, okay, I have to stop here, and and I will let him, and I will, and I will trust that he will stop at the at the sidewalk edge and wait for us, or look both ways. And I think it's really, you know, building this in- incredible self confidence where he know he knows what to do and where to go and how to do it, and he knows that mom and dad are are you know not hovering and saying, oh my god, you know, holding his hand and being there at every step. We're we're we've fallen back and we're letting him do do this thing and trusting him that he's not going to get it wrong. And obviously, you know, it's, it's a bit of a controlled risk because we're not going to let him cross the road um, if we're super far back, but it's a way of, of, you know, teaching him that he is responsible for himself, that he is, um, 
someone that, that can be tasked with, with responsibilities like that. And that we trust him to not cross that boundary. And I think it's huge. Um, and it's something I, you know, I, I try to explore all the time. And I really want my kids to know that I trust their decision making and their abilities. And that when they, when they try something and fail, it's going to be okay. But, you know, if I had had that when I was a kid, if I had had this implicit understanding that my parents trusted me and trusted my decisions, I think as a young woman, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, even 19, I think it would have, it would have changed my approach to certain things. And so I think it's so important to, to let your kids feel that you that you're giving them space uh, and that that space is based on love and trust that they are going to, to, to be able to figure it out for themselves. For me, the biggest thing that sort of speaks to is the superpower of confidence, right? You're just allowing your children to see that you've got belief in me. I can then build belief in myself and you start to build evidence that I'm capable. Humility with confidence is always a good thing because we don't want to raise arrogant adults either. We want them to understand that you have what it takes within you. And if you don't, we're here to help. I wonder if if it's an evolutionary issue or when our needs, when I put the word needs in quotes for anyone listening and not watching, um, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy, right? So our gen- the generation that was raising me, my first immigrant, sort of, uh, I'm a first generation Canadian, my parents were immigrants, and their needs were just so different to the needs that I maybe think my parent, my children have. And sometimes you get judgment from grandparents on the way we parent our kids, because it's not something they would have ever thought of um, as oh, being yeah. so important. Yeah. yeah. How, how does that affect our generation, do you think, of raising our children? Because we're still trying to possibly please our parents, I wonder. Uh, I'm not actually, I'm not at all. My mom, bless her heart, I, you know, I love her, but you know, she at the beginning was, was shocked by every decision we were making, you know, whether it was baby led weaning, you know, letting the child just like not mashing up the food and feeding the baby, like letting them explore, doing their own thing, building confidence once again. And she was just like, oh, no, constantly fussing over our choices as parents. And I finally just said to her, you know, mom, we're finding our way. We're doing our thing. But this is our choice. And this is how we want to do it. And she has grown to really respect it. And honestly, some of the most heart heartwarming moments have, you know, are when she tells me, you're, you know, you are a great mom. And she has said that to me many times. And it's amazing because, you know, I know that it's because I drew a boundary. I told her this is what I'm going to do. And she's seen it. And she's seen how my kids have grown and and they're beautiful, wonderful, kind, empathetic, gentle people. Uh, you know, so she she sees it in the children. And so she understands that that what I'm doing actually works and that it that it's different. But it's, you know, it's not that it's better it's different and it's, and it's yielding different results. And that was important to me. And so I, yes, I was like, no, I'm not trying to please you. I'm not trying to please anyone. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I think it's important to, to also stop the cycle um, of what, you know, I think you've alluded a lot to this, this cultural thing. I, I think you're speaking about South Asians, you know, take the good. There's a lot of good, the way we connect over food, the way, you know, the, the, this love for family and this connection to family and this responsibility to family, I think is amazing. But there are also 
toxic things that need to be cut off. And I think people should feel empowered to do that as well. That's very refreshing. Yes, I am referring to South Asian culture because that's what I know, obviously. But I also lived in Singapore recently. And I think my Chinese friends felt a lot of the same type of thing. So I don't know if it is just Indian or brown culture or whatever. I think there are Nigerian families that talk to me about the same type of thing and expectations that come from being in households that have strong expectations of not just their children, but their grandchildren too. So, and I think a lot of times I'm going to say mothers that, that are at home, but who, whichever carer is at home struggle. And so if anyone listening to this might be inspired by what you've just said, because we've just gone back to what we said right at the start about boundaries. And that's a really beautiful example of having a boundary in place and then seeing the benefits of it coming through, which is like you say, your mom respecting you and really understanding that different is okay. It's not a something to be scared of, which I think is often the issue is fear is what leads some of these worries for parents because it's just different to what we know. I think also think what something beautiful that comes out of that, if you can have those boundaries, is seeing your parents as people, as people who who are flawed and um, you know do doing their best, but 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 just made up of of all the parts that people are, and having your parents see you the same way, that you are not a product of them, that you are not an extension of them, that that you are your own fully fleshed person. And I, and I do the same with my kids, you know, an example of this is um, when my son, again, he's five, is talking to our neighbors or, or even my, my sisters, his, his aunts, um, he doesn't refer to me as mom, he refers to me as Emil, he'll say, Oh, Emil just came back from New York. And she got, you know, she got me this thing, because he understands I'm his mom. He calls me mom, of course. But, in, you know, outside of that relationship, I am a person and he refers to me as a person. And I think it's so beautiful and I really respect it and love it. And I see him as as his own person and he sees me as a person. And I think that that's so important because it gets very blurry when we take on these roles that can be very overwhelming and and sort of disappear our, our identities and i think that's what where a lot of moms struggle with burnout their identity is erased and they're just mom um, and that means so many things and it has such a it can be of such a cultural weight it can be such a just a, a responsibility for for what you have to do and who you have to be as mom so i love that my son sees me as as also being separate from that right it's i think it's just really important to 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 build that early because he knows i do these things i'm you know when i'm not being a mom i'm being me a person and i and i love that and and i i've really i think the relationship the intergenerational relationship is so healed and improved when we all look at each other as people and and accept our flaws and and move forward and that's something i i'd had to do with my parents you know to to really move on um and forgive and heal and be able to parent because i think often what we don't really talk about is how much of parenting is being a child again and and those wounds coming back up and those things that that were left unsaid or or that you've thought about that that are in your subconscious suddenly come racing to the front and you are in a way parenting yourself uh, at the same time as you're parenting your child because you 
you see all the things that, that you're doing for them that maybe you didn't get or, you know, it just, it, it, it's complicated. So complicated. And there's no handbook. In the spirit of celebrating failures, would you like to share one of your greatest failures that you look back on now and think, I'm so happy that happened or not? Maybe you don't think of it. I mean, you know, I think the years that I I wasn't writing, the years that I didn't have the confidence where I had the imposter syndrome and didn't take the leap to just write, that, that was a failure. And it took a long time. It took almost 40 years. You know, I've, I only just started, I mean, okay, it took, you know, 35 years, but I didn't have that. And, and I, I consider it a failure that I, I wasn't able to just say when, especially when I was young and didn't have kids and, you know, could have moved around and, and could have taken chances that I didn't, that I, I caved into keeping a steady job. My, you know, my dad would always be like, well, good thing you still have that job because it's, you know, it's your pension. And, um, I was be like, yeah, you're right, dad. I, you know, I, you know, as much as I can sit here and pretend like, oh, I have these amazing boundaries. I, you know, I still felt like I didn't want to disappoint my parent or my relatives or, you know, anyone. I wanted to be the, the, the good girl who, who's, Got, is stable and has this good job and is moving towards something. And yet that I consider that a failure. I consider it a failure that I, I wasn't able to just say, this is not for me. This is not who I am. Who I am is a writer. Who I am is someone who wants to tell these stories, live in that world and make that my career. I wish it hadn't taken me so long. And then my advice would to everyone would just be to take that leap because if you fail, at least you failed at, at the thing that you really wanted to do. That's beautiful. And it's very aligned with the Elevate messaging around kind of listening to your inner voice, not your inner critic, but your inner cheerleader and reminding yourself that you will become the authentic person that you're meant to be. It will all happen. And I love that. And I'm, I'm really grateful for you being so honest about that and so open. So thank you for sharing that. We have a few quick fire rapid questions. What would you like to see change for young girls in the future? I would love to see young girls have more confidence and believe in themselves more. Excellent. Love it. You're an Elevate Muse already. What would you take with you as a non-negotiable to a deserted island? Oh my God, I, I would have to have my phone. <laughs> I would have to have access to Twitter. I, I ha- It would just be... If I can't tweet from the island, what's even the point of being yeah. on the island? Oh, brilliant. Um, what makes a good friend in your eyes? A good friend is someone who understands you and allows you to be you even when the waters are rough. Oh, I love that. Beautiful. And if you could tell me who your role models are. You know, I, I have this uncle who was always really carving his own path and quite intellectual and surrounds himself with good books and good conversation and is really engaged. And he was a really a big role model for me growing up because I just saw amongst Again, going back to the cultural stereotypes, but amongst my family of people who did things a certain way, I saw this kind of black sheep. He just showed me that there was there was a way for me to to be my most authentic self and it would be okay. And so, yeah, my uncle. <laughs> I'm really grateful for you sharing your time and sharing your thoughts with me today. It's been really helpful and wonderful, really insightful for me. And I love talking to people who are aligned and have a very fresh, lovely take on talking about 
hard things. And I love your column, Hard Parts. Listeners, go off and find it if you haven't yet. There's not just the topics that we've discussed. You have a breadth of areas that you explore in your column, don't you? So many things. Yes, so many things. I know. I almost feel like you need to come around for dinner so I can pick your brains about more and more. So if you ever find yourself in London, please come around. So we can- I, absolutely, I will. We, I did live in London for a couple of years. Um, myself and my husband and our son were there for two years. I was working at the BBC um, and we're just dying to go back because we love it so much. Um, so I will. I will look you up. I can't wait. It's been so nice to speak to you. Thank you so much. If anyone is looking for more of your writing, is The Cut the main place to go for? The Cut is the main place for sure. But if you follow me on Twitter at Emil, then I always share my work on there. Excellent. Linking all her contact details and socials on my show notes. Do look them up and connect with Emil. She's absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for doing this. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from The Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.